text this morning, we've been studying through 1 Peter. We come to, let's say a couple things in advance. First, if you'll forgive me in the midst of the scripture readings, just a personal note. One of the great joys to me of being here uh, has been getting to know you all and greeting people as you come in and moving through the sanctuary before service. And I thought I probably should tell you, on, on Sundays when you just see me sitting up front and not greeting, it's not because I'm in a bad mood. It's because I've got some kind of sickness that I don't want to give you. So um, I always would prefer to be out there greeting you. I just uh, have been having what a lot of you have, some respiratory stuff. Uh, that's the personal note. Uh, the note related to our text is this, and I don't want to lose. I know uh, we don't have a lot of time left in the service, and I don't want to lose too much time, but it won't be lost if I'm able to express this clearly. Uh, always, when we go to the scriptures, we need to understand in, in words that I've heard ascribed to everybody from Augustine in, in the uh, era of the church fathers to T.R. Glover in the modern age. I don't know who first said it, but it's a wonderful remark. And it was said about the book of John, but it's true of all of scripture. The scripture is a pond in which a child may wade and an elephant may swim. So what I'm going to say does not mean that in order to derive spiritual life from the scriptures, you have to be a sophisticated, theologically articulate student of the scripture. I'm not saying that for a moment. God speaks deeply to his people from children through uh, old time Christians who studied the word all their lives. But the longer we are God's people, the more deeply we should seek to study and understand it, and the richer it becomes to us. Now, I say all of that, it's so germane always, but it's particularly germane now in the verses that I'm going to read to you. So a couple of things first. If, if Christ had come in our day, the pictures of people in the New Testament would be pictures of people in blue jeans and t-shirts or suits, or they'd be dressed the way that we're dressed. And the pictures of heaven would be pictures of people in blue jeans and suits because the Bible is written in the language of the people to whom it was originally written. John Walton of Wheaton College has put it this way. He said, by God's grace, the Bible was written for us all. It is his word to us. But it wasn't written originally to us. The Old Testament books were written to particular people, whether it was prophecy, poetry, historical narrative. It was written in Hebrew, not King James English, uh, to a particular people at a particular time. The New Testament was written in Koine or common Greek, but it's usually quoting in the Gospels people who are speaking Hebrew or Aramaic. So I'm always a little puzzled by pastors that get up and say, now the reason that Jesus used this particular Greek word, and I think, well, he didn't. He was speaking Aramaic. That's a spirit-inspired translation, but it's a translation of what he was saying. So realize we are removed by layers from the text. It doesn't mean it can't be clear and God won't make it clear, but it means we need to be thinking. We need to realize that they were writing 
Bible written over a period of about 1,500 years. Imagine a book begun by, by Julius Caesar and, and finished by Columbus with 40 different authors that the more you read it, the more you realize is all one story in all sorts of different literary genres. Now, I could get lost in that, and some of you I've probably already lost, so come back to me. Hopefully you'll see why I'm saying all of this. When the apostles in their letters applied the word of God, they were applying the gospel to their particular situation. They were writing to Christians whom they knew who were facing particular situations and they were showing us, they were giving us an example of how you apply the gospel of Christ into different settings. They weren't necessarily saying, this is exactly what you're to do. Otherwise, every woman in here would have her head covered or her face veiled. Um, nobody would dare wear braids in their hair or any gold because that would be against what. You have to understand that he was writing to people where women were property. If they were Jewish, if they were Israelites, they too were owned by their husbands, and I can prove it by this. A Jewish husband could divorce his wife for any reason as long as he gave her a certificate of divorce. She could not divorce him for any reason. She was his. He could send her away if she displeased him. She couldn't send him away unless she had a big brother who was bigger than her husband. <laughs> In the Greco-Roman world, it was worse. You only appreciated Roman law if you were a male Roman citizen. If you were a woman or a child or a slave, you belonged to your husband or your father or your master. And by the Roman right of patria, father, potestas, potentate, within the family, the father, if he, he could put his children to death or his wife to death. So that's the situation he's writing into, to people, slaves, women, children, who had no rights whatsoever. And so many people read the Bible and don't realize that what happened in Europe and in America that brought the freedoms that we know were the result of the gospel working its way so just before I read these verses, I want you to imagine something. Imagine a young woman coming to Annapolis as a student and spending a few years here. She's from Saudi Arabia. Her family is Wahhabi Muslim, the strictest set. Her father has already arranged a marriage for her with a Wahhabi cleric when she returns. And while here, she comes to Christ. And now she's to go back in obedience to her family, marry this man who expects her to wear a burqa, to stay home, never to be able to go out without her, never to be able to drive. That is her life. That is her cultural context. And she comes to us before she goes home and says, what will it look like for me to be a Christian married to this man in Saudi Arabia? Well, if we had any sense, we would say, exactly what Peter was writing to women in exactly your situation. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. 
when they see your respectful and pure conduct, to not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And now a word that is unparalleled in first century literature, except from the Apostle Paul. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, what I'd like to do in the next few minutes is just to try to break these verses down and to argue that while the first six verses are addressed specifically to wives, these verses contain two exhortations that should apply to every one of us, wives and husbands and unmarried people, and not merely in the relations between men and women, but in all of our relations. And then when we come to the final verse, verse 7, and see an exhortation specifically addressed to husbands who are Christians, he's addressing Christian wives who may be married to non-Christian husbands and Christian husbands who may be married to non-Christian wives, what he tells the husbands should apply as well in our context to both men and women in any relationship we're building. And I hope at the end you'll understand what I'm trying to say. If not, my fault. The first six verses are addressed specifically to the wives in that cultural context. How am I writing, remember, to people facing persecution, probably under Nero? He's saying, you have this special calling. He's talked to slaves, now he's talking to the women. And he tells them, really, there are two things that he focuses on. The first is in verse 1, and then the second is in verses 2 through 6. The first is just this. He says, don't seek to build your relationship merely through talk, but through deeds. Imagine a young woman in that context, let's say she's not Jewish, she's part of the Greco-Roman world, and she has come to Christ and she is longing for her husband to come to Christ. But within that culture, it is con considered a subversive act for a wife not to adopt the religion of her husband. That was the cultural rule in the Greco-Roman world. The husband didn't become like the wife. The wife was expected when she married him, if she belonged to a different religion, she was accepting his religion. Now she believes something profoundly different. And the very language of it is subversive to the cultural order. After all, 
She wants to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, the word gospel, euangelion, did not begin with the Christians. They took it from the Romans. It was the word that was used if something wonderful, like the birth of a child, happened to the royal family, to the emperor in Rome. If they had a child, it, here's the good news, the euangelion, a child's been born to the emperor. So what do the Christians do? They say, that doesn't matter. This is what matters. The one great king over all kings has sent his son into the world. He has been born to redeem us. And that's the only good news worth calling Galia. They speak of the Savior, of the Lord, of the King of kings. Those are all titles that were ascribed, even Son of God. Caesar was called the Son of God. Caesar was called Lord once a year. And this explains why, uh, I've said it to you, I think, before. This explains why uh, when we read Romans 10 and Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And people think, okay, I stood up at four years of age in my Sunday school class and confessed. Well, that's great. I'm glad you did. Paul was talking to people who were required once a year to go up to a temple built to honor Caesar, to take a pinch of incense, put it on the altar, and say, Caesar is Lord. If they would do that and pay their taxes, the rest of the year they could worship any way they wanted. But he's saying, at the point in your life where it costs you something, are you going to say Jesus is Lord or are you going to bend the knee to Caesar? Same thing in 1 Corinthians 12, where he says, only by the Holy Spirit can you say Jesus is Lord. Well, you might have read that and thought, what's he talking about? I mean, I could go in any bar in town and say, drinks all around for anyone who says Jesus is Lord. That's all you would hear. <laughs> He's not talking about that. He's talking about this deal where they had to go up. You're not going to put your life on the line, your future on the line, in a hostile culture. And they knew what he was talking about. We don't if we haven't studied And so here, we see this woman stuck in a situation where her life could be on the line from her extended family, from her culture, and from her husband. And he's saying, I am not putting the burden of verbal witness on you. I'm not sending you back with the four spiritual laws and saying, if you don't try to do that. No, he says, simply love your husband so well that he'll want to know what's going on because you're not like the other ones. Let this be a matter of character. And doesn't that apply to all of us? I mean, talk about those of us who make a living with words. One of the reasons that people are so turned off to Christianity in America is because of people like me who are forever preaching it and then they get to know us and we don't live. And so he's saying, the more important, at some point you need the word absolutely, but you need to start with the authenticating life of love. Uh, in the church I served many years, uh, we had a, one of the older guys on staff, now with the Lord. Uh, but he was so funny, every time we brought a young pastor on, his first advice was, always tell the truth, 
but don't always be telling her. You know, just, you know, just control yourself. Not just words, don't just talk. In marriages, isn't that what we long for? Yes, we speak the truth, but oh my goodness, it means more when your spouse serves you, husband or wife, does something for you that you say, boy, she does love me, I can't believe it. He, he actually did that. And then when you say, I love you, it's pictured, it's shown. Brothers and sisters, those of us who have children and grandchildren, some of whom may not be walking with the Lord, do they dread coming to see us because they know they're gonna get a sermon? Do they not wanna hear from us? There comes a point when the children are young, you wanna catechize them, teach them the word, put the truth in them, but you reach a place where you need to start talking more to God about them than to them about God. You just let them come home and know that this is the one refuge where people are gonna love them. You've got nothing more to tell them than you've told them a thousand times. You pray it in. Sometimes one of my children who uh, is too much like me uh, will, I'll listen, but if she says something that really is just over the top, I've learned to say, would you like to know what I think about that? And she'll usually say, that sounds like dinner, Dad. And I say, it is. You pick the place, I'll pay. I'll be gentle. But, okay, you got the point. True for all of us. The key is to love people well and earn the right to be heard. That's why the culture wars have just wrecked evangelicalism in this country. Because the very people who need most to hear what we have to say despise us because they think we despise them. And too often we've acted as though we do. It's fine to disagree. It's great to be free to have principled debate, but we are to treat, as we'll see in a minute, treat with respect and with honor. All those, because they're made in God's image. Remember, in a previous text, where he who was warning them that persecution was coming, Nero, who used Christians in his garden as torches, he would impale them, cover them in pitch, and light them to light up his gardens. And Peter says, honor the emperor. We need to remember that, whether Republican or Democrat, in this next election, it is fine to have principal disagreements with positions and actions and the rest, but we need to treat with honor those whom God has made in his image and likeness. That's a hard one. It's hard for me, I'll confess that to you. I'm preaching to myself. The second thing, I've got to really go fast. The second thing, which is verses two through six, he says, let your adorning come from what's inside you instead of merely trying to look a certain way. And the picture that he uses is the picture that was mocked in the first century of the Roman women who would just have these fabulous braids all done up to where uh, their hair, I, I mean, it's funny to read the descriptions and even the, the humorists of that day made fun of them. It was this elaborate thing and weighted down with gold. In our culture, you know, a young girl with a braid down her back and a simple gold necklace, that's a picture of chastity. So you have to interpret it. You have to bring the language. You've got to put it in English and put it in the culture. 
But his key is don't focus relationships on how people look, but on who they are, on what's inside. Now the scripture celebrates beauty in all kinds of ways. I mean, read the Song of Songs. It's an embarrassment to most of us. But uh, this celebration of beauty and the physical love of a man and a woman for each other. But what he's talking about is the deeper truth that every one of us has experienced. Every one of us has met incredibly beautiful women and extraordinarily handsome men whom the longer we knew them became less and less attractive. As suddenly, whenever we saw them, we no longer saw what was out there. We just saw, oh no, please, no. And on the other side, Every one of us has known people who, when we first met them, seemed utterly unremarkable to look at, maybe even to speak to. But the longer we've known them, the more beautiful they've become. Just because the life of Christ coming through them transforms them. Okay, that's for all of us what he says to the women. And then this last one to the men. I I tell you, when we read this, we can't just think of our culture. I mean, when I hear people say Paul was such a misogynist, I say, let me tell you about first century and then take you to 1 Corinthians 7. There he says, wives, your bodies are not your own. And every woman hearing it in church would have groaned and said, boy, do I know that. And then he says something without equal You won't find this anywhere else in first century literature. It was unknown in the ancient world. He said, husbands, your bodies are not your own. They belong to your wife. Wow. So he is laying the groundwork of saying, and the reason I wanted us to read those first two texts is that the Genesis account reminds us that to be fully human in God's image and likeness involves both male and female. Humankind is male and female. And you have to have both for us to be reflecting the beautiful image of God, just as the one God in three persons. So we're made incomplete so that we can't fully image him except in community. You don't have to be married, but you need to be in community. There need to be others there so that we are reflecting... I'm not the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. I'm a member of that body. All these pictures show us how much we have to be together. The second, the gospel lesson, was just to remind us that just before Jesus went to the cross, all of his guys still didn't have a clue what it was about. Only Mary. All the way up to Jerusalem, Jesus kept telling them, when I get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to die. Peter went to him and said, doesn't have to be that. I have a word from the Lord for you. Doesn't have to happen like that. If, if uh, those who believe that Peter was the first pope, I like to tell them that his first uh, papal word was bull. It was a pa- papal bull. Uh, if, you know, if, because that was his first thing after Jesus said, you know, uh, I call you now the rock. But Mary had been listening. She understood. And Jesus only left two memorials 
in his whole ministry. In one, he said, do this in remembrance of me. And he said, tell this in remembrance of her. Wherever the gospel goes in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her because that's the kind of listening, responding faith that God desires. So, what does he say to the man? He says, don't build relationships through power, but through honor. He says, the woman's the weaker vessel. You may hear that and wince, but as one woman commentator said, sisters, uh, if there were a global wrestling match, I guarantee you a woman would not be the winner. Uh, this was a culture which honored physical strength, a warrior culture. And so the woman was weaker physically. I know some of you could take me in three falls, but he's speaking, <laughs> he's speaking generally. Um, but he's, the point that he's making is don't use your power in relationships. Build relationships by giving honor. You give honor. And he uses the words of understanding, live in an understanding way with your wife. How many of us who are married and have been married for many years have had our wives, sometimes had a discussion with our wives, and at the end we thought it had gone well, and she said, you just don't get it, do you? Uh, you know, don't you understand what I'm saying? No, could we run through that again? Uh, you know, he's saying, guys, live in an understanding way. Seek to understand the other person. Seek to know her needs and her longings and her passions and to honor her. In that culture, she couldn't be an heir. The guys were heirs. And if she inherited something, it would go to her husband. But he says, in Christ, you are joint heirs. She's an heir together with so honor her. And then the final thing is, to me, the most counterintuitive and easy to miss, but crucial for us to hear. And Paul says something very like this in 1 Corinthians 7. Basically, I'll put it this way. Um, don't pray to live. Live to pray. Does that make sense? No, probably not. L listen to how he says it. He ends by saying, show honor to the woman. She's an heir with you, the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Most of us see our prayers as ways of trying to get our concerns somehow into God's iPhone so that, you know, they'll be on, he'll remember that day that, you know, oh yeah, John's got this coming up, I, you know being silly, but still, most of us pray about specific things that we want God's help with. Now, it's fine to pray that way. I mean, God invites us. He's our Father. He, he invites us to bring everything to Him, but that's not the heart of it. If we're parents and we have small children, we want our kids to come to us with concerns or when they need help. But if that's all they ever do, that's pretty sad. What we want most is for them to want to do something with us just to be there together. Husbands, wives, 
should want most of all just to be together. Can we just not have an agenda tonight? Can we just enjoy being together? And he's saying, when you do that, when you live in this way that the Lord has designed, when you love in this way, when you honor in this way, what happens is that it opens up your relationship with your Father in heaven. And you find yourself in this prayer without ceasing where he's always present. And you're speaking to him about everything. He's there with you. So that you're not praying first and foremost for the things in your life. You are saying, I want to live in such a way that I'm not breaking fellowship with my Father in heaven. It's an astonishing word. It's a liberating word when we read it in its context and then see how it applies to ours, a world, in our case, that is totally changed. Much of the world has not yet changed because the gospel hasn't done its work. I mean, people, when people complained about the things that ISIS was doing, I made a lot of people mad by reading from Deuteronomy when the Israelites were told to do the exact same things that ISIS was doing. And I said, look, what we have to understand is this is how ancient people waged war. This was not surprising. It, it was horrifying because nobody wanted to experience it, but it wasn't, the concept wasn't horrifying. That's how you waged war. And when we see Hamas and others, this is no excuse. It was horrendous. It was horrible. But we have to understand that Israel is a modern people who think like us. Your extreme Muslim terrorists are ancient people trying to act the way that the ancient world acted and to wage war that way. It's horrific. It's horrible. We need to do what we can to stop it. I'm not apologizing for it. Excuse me. But I'm saying we have to understand different cultures in this world and the fault lines of those cultures and how horrific it can be when they crash. But we are called, wherever we are, whatever culture we are in, to find the right way to serve the Lord, to love well, to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with our God. Would you stand? Would you... Take just a moment and ask the Lord to apply to your heart whatever he is saying through his word and to edit out of your memory any things that I've said that have not been faithful to his truth. Father, may we all seek lives that are adorned by inner beauty, the work of your Holy Spirit through your word. Make us more each day like Christ and may our life with you, our prayer life before you, be unhindered by the lives we live. In Jesus' name.